Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Welcome to the McMaster EM Podcast. This is Prashant Falfer from Brampton Civic Hospital, and we're excited to be part of the Mac EM Podcast team. Today, I'm here with my colleague, Leila Salahi, also an ED physician at Brampton Civic, who has been doing some great research on ED overcrowding. Today, we will be discussing the findings of her most recent article on ED crowding. Welcome, Leila. Thank you for having me. So, Leila, tell me what brought about your interest in ED overcrowding. So, well, ED overcrowding is not, it's certainly not a new issue. It's an issue that's been around um, almost as long as EDs have. But I think what's changed is that uh, while I'm not sure that it's necessarily getting worse, it is getting more complicated. And I mean, certainly we've noticed a lot of media attention around the issue of bedboarding and the related issue of hallway medicine over the past year or two, to the point where it's actually um, managed to kind of bubble up to the top past a lot of other healthcare and social issues. And um, as we all recall, was uh, kind of fairly prominently discussed in, uh, in the recent provincial elections. So since we work in one of the busiest EDs in the country, and we do have a fairly significant uh, overcrowding and bedboarding issues in our ED, it seemed like a fairly natural step to just sort of, you know, put this phenomenon under the microscope and see if we could find some useful lessons to, uh, to try and improve the care that we provide to our patients. So what are uh, some of the things that you discovered? Um, so I think um, the most interesting thing that we found out, uh, not necessarily in this study, but in looking at previous studies done on this topic, is the fact that a lot of what causes ED overcrowding lays outside of the walls of the ED itself. And this is not something that's, um, that's you know, that's new to kind of veteran emergency department uh, physicians, but it's something that maybe is not as well understood to sort of the greater uh, general public. Um, but a lot of these studies sort of talk about the ED as being uh, the canary in the coal mine in terms of um, when things fall apart in the emergency department, it really is an indication that uh, there's some greater, much more systemic problem. And what are some of the specific causes of ED overcrowding? So the causes of emergency department overcrowding tend to, to vary, really, depending on the emergency department itself and the local healthcare environment. So, you know, every hospital is different, and some emergency departments may have an issue with patient volume. For others, it might be lack of ED resources, like lack of nursing or physician resources or capacity. Uh, but for larger hospitals, the main problem does seem to be one of bedboarding. So bedboarding basically is when a patient has completed their ED workup, has been admitted to the hospital, and is just waiting in the emergency department for a bed to become available somewhere on the inpatient ward. And that wait time can take several hours or even days. And the studies that have looked at crowding in the ED have been fairly consistent that this is one of the main, if not the main cause of crowding, at least in larger hospitals. So knowing this literature, how do you reconcile some of the solutions we hear about uh, how we should fix ED overcrowding? 
So, so when, I mean, when you hear about some of the proposed solutions to overcrowding, you really have to look at them with a critical eye. For instance, a lot of discussions around solutions, mostly in sort of the general public and, and the media, and to some degree at the government level, tend to gravitate again back towards this issue of increasing access to primary care or trying to get those low acuity patients, like the ones with the sprains or the ones with viral illnesses, to somehow kind of self-triage themselves away from the ED. And, that pro- and the problem with that is that, um, and there's a fair bit of evidence to support this, is that those patients, those low acuity kind of CTAS 4 and 5 patients actually take up very little resources and don't have a, an impact or certainly not a significant impact on ED flow. And also in terms of expanding after hours access to primary care or expanding primary care in general, this doesn't necessarily translate into reduced crowding or even reduced hospitalization. It certainly has other benefits. But reducing ED crowding doesn't seem to be one of them. Okay, so diverting low acuity patients from the ED doesn't improve ED overcrowding. Gotcha. What what did you find in your research? Uh, so what we found in our center, which I think applies to a lot of the larger hospitals, is that there's a huge differential in boarding times among admitted patients. And I think we tend to think of boarded patients as a fairly homogenous group. But in fact, the wait times can actually vary immensely. And a lot of that has to do with uh, with this, with sort of operations issues in terms of which service a patient gets admitted to. So, for instance, we found that patients that are admitted to the medicine service wait like far, far, far longer than those admitted to the other services like peds or surgery or even ICU. In fact, uh, we found that within within our center, certainly well over ninety percent of patients with prolonged boarding times were admitted to the medicine service. And this is not something that's really unique, that's unique to our hospital, certainly. We've looked at some data from other hospitals, and, and it seems to be the case in, in other hospitals as well, that sort of that medicine-admitted patients are very, very sort of disproportionately represented in the boarded patient population, at least in larger hospitals. So why do you think medicine patients have such great delays? So, I mean, in all fairness, medicine patients do tend to be more complicated and have longer inpatient lengths of stay. And and what's more to the point is that they have fairly unpredictable inpatient lengths of stay. So there's a lot of social issues that complicate uh, the picture with medicine patients. There's also a lot more outliers in terms of medicine patients staying in the hospital for weeks or even months long after whatever, you know, whatever the issue was that brought them to the hospital has been resolved. And while we're all kind of aware of the issue of, you know, long-term care bed shortage or rehab bed shortage, it gets even more complicated when the patient isn't necessarily heading towards one of those institutionalized beds. So in contrast, you know, a pediatric patient, especially in a community hospital, will spend, you know, a couple of days in the hospital and be discharged home. And even surgical patients, you know, tend to be fairly predictable in terms of their turnover uh, you know, a lot of surgical beds are occupied by elective surgical patients. So those are the ones that we don't see in the emergency department. And they've already been kind of fairly optimized prior to surgery. But medicine patients, for, you know, for some of the reasons that I alluded to, uh, tend to lo- linger kind of longer in the hospital. And that's going to have upstream impacts in terms of bed availability for those admitted ED boarded patients waiting for a bed. So we, I mean, we all know that medicine uh, patients are more complex for some of the reasons that you just described. Uh, what did you find in your study specifically about medicine patients that led to these delays? So we found that even within medicine patients, there is actually a pretty high degree of variability in terms of boarding time. So this variability actually seemed to be independent of, of patient-specific factors, like how sick a patient was, for instance. 
We found that patients who required like a telemetry bed or an isolation bed also waited longer for a bed. So that, um, you know, in the emergency department, when you're making the decision that a patient requires a telebed or an isolation bed, you're both, you know, extending that patient's boarding time, you're extending that patient's inpatient length of stay, and you're also diverting resources away from the ED to care for for what is actually a very resource-intensive patient, like one that probably will require their own cubicle. And it's important to sort of keep in mind the background to this, which is that even though we think about the indications for tele or for isolation as being very rigid, the recommendations are not consistent and they're not based on very robust evidence and they're not uh, consistently applied by practitioners in the real world. These are things that could be altered institutionally to, you know, to adopt a more kind of nimble approach, more um, flexible approach when it comes to bed allocation. So any other interesting findings that came up in in this research? So another thing that was striking was the fact that there was a very disproportionate distribution of resource utilization uh, that was kind of concentrated within a very small number of ED patients. So at Brampton, uh, during the study period, we had 130,000 ED visits uh, during that year, but there were only about 4,000 patients that had what we call prolonged boarding time. So that's only about 3% of the total number of patients that we saw during that year. And that's, you know, that's something that shouldn't be surprising or striking because it's such a common phenomenon in healthcare that there is this concentration of uh, healthcare resources being used by a very, very small proportion of the population. Like, for instance, we know that uh, in Ontario, 1% of the population uses up a third of, uh, of total healthcare resources. And, you know, whereas the bottom 50% of healthcare users only use up about 1% of total expenditures. And this, this sort of disproportionate kind of health util- healthcare utilization by, a, by these high utilizers is something that we hear a lot when discussing how to change healthcare delivery, but somehow when it comes to implementation, we still seem to grab onto these very untargeted universal approaches like public education around self-triage, like patient education in general, or like, you know, strengthening primary care. And that's, you know, that's not to say that those are not valuable goals, but rather to indicate that this specific problem of ED crowding really requires something a bit more nuanced and individualized. So what do you think are some solutions hospitals should be looking at? So there's not really, you know, one kind of silver bullet solution to this problem. It really does depend on each hospital and the nature of their problems and the available resources. It's kind of an easy answer uh, to just say we need more hospital beds or we need more long-term care beds or more home care services or what have you. But I think that without being a bit more creative about how we're using our current resources, we would just end up where we are now. And so one thing, again, for, for, the, for each hospital is to look at which patients in your hospital are waiting the longest and why that is. Is there some institutional policy around isolation or around teleassignments that can be changed? Or is there some inefficiencies that can be tightened up, like around bed turnaround time or discharging inpatients earlier in the day or, or you know, using your empty beds uh, by being a bit more creative about bed assignments? And I guess the key challenge is that all of this requires a bit more creativity and flexibility and leadership engagement. And that's not something that comes naturally to these large, sort of very incredibly complex, very rigidly run organizations like hospitals. But what I can say is that our hospital, we've had some encouraging results in terms of cutting down our bed boarding time. 
Now, in terms of how we did that, there was a lot of moving parts and we we did have funding for additional beds, but we also did see a great deal of engagement at the senior leadership level in terms of uh, making changes to the way things are done at just this like fundamental administrative level and specifically targeted to these medicine admitted patients. So we, you know, we had initiatives around admission divergence, around expediting discharge of admitted patients, um, expediting bed turnaround time, and a number of other very overarching uh, programs. So Leila, what what do you think is a big take-home message here for our listeners? So I think, again, the key thing is to make sure that each hospital is taking a careful and critical look sort of inward and identifying its problems and taking measures to address these in a way that is, you know, that is individualized and flexible and ensures accountability and sustainability sort of in the long term. Great. Thanks, Leila. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this month's episode, where Dr. Leila Salahi talks about her research in ED overcrowding. As she discussed, a lot of what causes ED overcrowding lays outside of the walls of the ED itself. In many ways, ED overcrowding is an indication of a greater systemic problem. Some of the causes of ED overcrowding that she discovered in her research include higher patient volumes, lack of resources, such as staffing, and mainly bedboarding. She also found that while typically low acuity patients are thought to take up a lot of resources and time in the emergency department, they actually take up little resources and don't have much of an impact on ED flow. As such, reducing the number of lower acuity patients in the emergency departments doesn't reduce ED overcrowding. She also discussed the variability of length of stay across different specialties, where general medicine admissions have the longest boarding times. This is for several reasons, including a lower turnover of patients, and increased complicated social issues that will delay discharges. She also discovered that other reasons for bedboarding include decisions that are made in the emergency department, such as admitting patients with telemetry or on isolation protocols. Both of these can increase bedboarding times and increase ED overcrowding. Some of the solutions that were proposed are to look at patients that are waiting the longest and to look at why this is happening, but also to look at the patients who have higher turnovers and where the empty beds in the hospital are. For making change at your local hospital, it's important to address each of the issues in an individualized and creative way to ensure long-term sustainable success, and it's essential to have engagement at a senior leadership level. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy Teaching That Counts and The Residence Corner. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. All right, welcome back for another episode of Teaching That Counts. Today, we're gonna talk about diagnosing the learner. We've previously talked about this before, LM, right? Yeah, Teresa. So we're going to go through one of our frameworks here to help us look at how do we really narrow down at what point the learner is in their sort of global pathway through medical education. So this is a very famous framework by Pangaro, and it is the RHYME framework. It's an acronym, so it stands for Reporter, Interpreter, Manager, and Educator, R-I-M-E. So the reporter is really that person who's right at the first step in their medical training. 
They are the ones who are early in their medical training, and they're the ones who come back from a patient encounter and basically just verbal diarrhea, right? They come back and they tell you about Mrs. Jones, who's 76, who fell, and three years ago she went here in 1976, right? So they're the ones who are extremely focused on the history, and usually it's overly inclusive. It's almost like they're doing a word-for-word transcription of exactly what they took down in the room. And so they're just working on that first stage of being able to integrate the history. And so that's kind of like your classic having trouble with reporter stage. The challenge with that is that as someone listening to the history, I have no way of knowing what are the important details and does the learner know what details are important. So Teresa, what do you do with these learners? So this is where I actually tell them a little bit of insight. And Blair Bigham, who's actually a real journalist, will tell me if this is wrong. But (laughs) I kind of tell them that in an emergency department, we kind of structure our history presentations like you do when you're writing an article for the newspaper. You lead with a headline, and then the most important stuff needs to come first. And then we triage out to the details out just in case at any point sometime during this, we know statistically that we will get interrupted to look at an ECG, get called to recess, <laughs> yeah. get a phone call back and say, oh, hold that, <laughs> right? And and so because we know that we're in a constant state of interruption in the emergency department, then it's really important actually for us to reframe how someone might actually structure their presentation back to us. And so there's actually some resources that we'll link to on our podcast notes. But uh, what we want to try to do is like look at the three-minute case presentation as an example of how we might scaffold it. Um, it's not the most elegant handout, but it is a handout that functionally says, you know, what should you put in this part, this part, this part, so that they actually understand the underlying architecture of a great case presentation for emergency medicine. So the way I sometimes frame this to learners is I say to them, imagine that I'm at home asleep and you're calling me on the phone, what are the details you want me to know right away about this patient? That's a great way to frame it. And usually it's stuff like, is this patient sick or unstable? What's your kind of gestalt for what your differential is? Mm -hmm. And what are the key historical elements, either from past medical history or from their presentation, that make you concerned about a particular diagnosis? I really try and get them to commit to those early elements because then I can see them start to really pull out some of those important details, start to interpret some of those early details and start pushing them further along this pathway. And a lot of the time, the reason why they have trouble with this is because they've been on other rotations where the storytelling is different. So we just have to acknowledge that we like our way a certain way, because emergency docs do not like mystery novels. And we're not like murder, she wrote kind of like classic people. Um, We don't want you to hide the differential on us because at any point we might get interrupted. We want it headline new CNN style where they're talking about the same thing for like a bunch of times because at some point I might get drawn away. And so the the narrative structure is different and to explain that because sometimes our clinical clerks are presenting like we're the internist or the pediatrician. And the reason why they're confused is because they don't understand that the cultural nuances and the demands of the clinical environment are different. So uh, laying that doubt as an expectation or explaining that architecture is actually really important. So that's reporter. The next stage is interpreter. So interpreter is the person that has a really good history, reports all the physical exam, but then can't put together the assessment and plan. Um, and because assessment is so important for the plan, in fact, it's that their assessment, their one-liner, their three-liner, whatever it is to encapsulate the patient and build the differential is just not gelling, right? They're the ones that, like, for some reason, knew to ask all the DVT criteria for a leg pain in the history, but then can't tell you the well score, mm-hmm. right? And so that means that they're having trouble 
interpreting and integrating the information. And that's actually not an easy stage. We all kind of forget that it was hard to do this, but your average learner is, or even an average clinician, is pulling in data from the visual, from the auditory, from the chart, from five different kinds of chart, from you know the collateral historian, from the social worker, like it goes on and on and on. And so sometimes pulling all of this data together can be actually a fairly hard task to do. I think here, one of the big elements of interpretation is also how do you rank and generate a differential? And you'll see learners struggle with this. And it's exactly like you said, on the history, they'll have nailed all these historical elements. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get the differential. And even though they asked about all these PE and DVT risk factors, neither of those will be on your differential. And so there's a disconnect between how they're taking that information and how they're analyzing it. Yeah. Or maybe that, that you just need to be more patient and you can say, oh, why is this and this not on your differential? And they'll be like, well, I didn't tell you, but perk negative and yada, yada. And so like, I think it's important to just probe a little bit more in their interpretation to have better understanding. Because some trainees are very explicit and it's almost like they're on performance. And so they'll be like, well, I did all this stuff and my assessment plan is well score is this, perk rule is this, heart score is this. And they're like, ah, and they have all the details. And some of them might need a little bit of probing, be like, okay, so... Based on your history, can we construct a well score? And they'll be like, yes, and it's this. And and so some people just aren't as forward facing. And so it's just good to check check in and just ask those awkward silent questions where you count to seven while you're <laughs> waiting for them to respond. So interpreter is when people are having trouble with integrating information. Okay. And so here with the interpreter stage, one of the papers that you might use to scaffold your thinking is the SNAPS model or the one minute preceptor model. We've previously talked about one minute preceptor before, but here you're trying to get them to commit. You're going to get them to commit to what's going on and then what you're going to do about that. Right. And so the idea would be that this is where you want to actually get them to hard and fast their differential um, and then alter that based on the data that they have. So that you're using a differential that you went into the room with as a, as a scaffold, but then you come out of the room, you're going to customize and make it more of a bespoke, you know, a differential. And then that's going to be the one that you guide the rest of your plan. And so I think that using one minute preceptor to get them really to commit to that plan is a great way to do it. And the probing for supporting evidence, right? Because sometimes you have learners who are struggling at the interpreter phase because they can't justify or explain why they're ordering certain investigations or certain tests. And they may just be doing it because they've seen it a certain way or they've seen a similar patient and that's the care pathway they followed. And so really pulling out not just what they want to do, but why they want to do it is an essential part of this step. Yeah, that's really important. I think that that's where you can get into really good discussions around practice variation and evidence-based medicine, because those two things sometimes are uh, intersecting in this space. We're looking at the next stage now, and that would be manager. And so management is like, you know, what we're usually trying to do. John Sherboneau just wrote a paper in JAMA about management and how sometimes that's like everyone's ugly stepsister when it comes to diagnostic reasoning. But management reasoning is actually really important, too. Um, and so I think hardening this as one of the things that we're aiming for is that most people should be a manager for most situations. And if we can get everyone to the RIM, the manager part, then we'll have done our job. And we don't need them to be educators for everything. 
We just need them to truly understand how to manage every diagnosis that comes in the door, which is not a tall, it's not a short order, right? Yeah. And I like this framework for, it gives me a sense of the different levels of the residents or the different levels of the learners yeah. where I can even focus some of my discussion. Because sometimes you have those super senior residents who are studying for their Royal College or the EM exams, and they're quoting studies at you and quoting stuff from the textbooks where you're like, it's been a few years. Yeah. I don't know if I remember this. So yeah. maybe there are yeah. elements here. Yeah. You're Googling like, it in the back pocket. Yeah. You're like, yeah. yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I did read that paper I right concur. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this really gives you a sense of where you can focus some of the conversation and maybe this is on practice variation or how you integrate the evidence mm-hmm. or some of the challenges associated with that. I think Rob Woods had a mnemonic that he uses at this area, right? Yeah, so Rob Woods from University of Saskatchewan did, made up a mnemonic that's in CGEM um, and he talked about the RAPID mnemonic. So RAPID stands for R, resuscitation, A, analgesia and assessment, P, patient needs, I, interventions, and investigations. D, disposition. And so he came off this framework for scaffolding someone's uh, management plan. And it's actually very elegant because if they give you that one-liner that they were able to do, now they should take that one-liner about that patient who's a 26-year-old female with pleuritic chest pain and then apply the decision rules and now they're going to give you the rapid pneumonia. She's stable, doesn't need resuscitation. Um, she's got some pleuritic chest pain. I think I'm going to start, give her some Tylenol. She's really worried. She has a PE. And then you're going to go and do um, investigations. You're like, I've done the PERC rule. She's PERC negative. She's not an OCP. She's not pregnant. So I'd like to move ahead with my, you know, like reassurance and disposition plan. So um, the idea would be that when you present it that way, it's it's like very elegant. It's just, you know, like a, a snapshot of what a good management plan should look like. And so thanks to Rob, uh, who gets a shout out for this episode. But I think it's a really great way to just really highlight some of the key facets of what you end up wanting to do. And this framework can be helpful for when you're first setting your objectives for a shift. And then within a few minutes, when you're in that first hour or two, where we've talked before about setting in a checkpoint with your learner, you may realize that, you know what, we had set an objective for a management level um, EPA or a management level assessment, but really they're struggling and they're stuck at the reporter phase. And that one or two hour checkpoint might be where I say, you know what, we actually need to take a step back. I explain to them this framework and say, look, in the re- you're in the reporter phase. Let's use some of the techniques to really pull ourselves out of this phase and maybe push management level objectives to the next shift. And so the last stage in Pangaro's framework is educator. And this is something that we're hoping all of you aspire to be and and we're hoping that uh, you will continue to struggle with this as we all do and we can commiserate with you. Um, but I mean, I would say that on 90% of the cases, I'm probably still kind of in the management zone. And there are certain things that I really like to educate about, right? Everybody has those areas and you should lean into those. But every so often, I think it's good to like refresh things and be able to engage ourselves in thinking new. And so for those who are looking to up their education game, this is where you kind of put it all together. And so we've kind of done the management strategy for educator, which is to point out that there's an R, there's an I, and then there's M, right? Reporter, interpreter, manager stage for every diagnosis. And that it's okay that not everyone gets to the educator phase. And we've kind of given you the the recipe um, for kind of how to manage each of those stages. And so remember, you're not going to be an educator in all things. That's just not possible. But hopefully you can use this framework to kind of like at least elucidate and have good conversations about different phases of the way that we think about how we do our job. And this might be something where you're turning around and giving this framework to the learner who's working with you and saying, look, let's get you to the educator phase. 
especially if they have an opportunity to supervise a junior clinician or a junior trainee, they can then use this. I also use the educator role as part of your peer group, right, to try and say, how can we as colleagues improve our bedside teaching or improve our clinical practice? This is kind of that hallway chats that we have, right, where we share cases and stories and things like that. Mm -hmm. We're using a lot of these elements from educator where we're integrating a lot of this information and then turning it back to improve the ability of that learner to then train future generations of clinicians. Yeah, so that's kind of the rhyme framework. Again, reporter, interpreter, manager, and educator. And like we said, you don't have to be it all the time. And most of the time, you're probably just going to be a manager, and that's A-OK. And sometimes, you know, when the case is hard enough, you might regress. Like I said, I've been previously said, there's one case where I just kept on reading lab values <laughs> without interpretation to the intensivist, who is reading them back to me. We're both staring at Meditech, we're like, this makes no sense. Yeah. And it's because, you know, there was a lab error and all that stuff, but we were just stuck at that interpreter stage. And we were, you know, like fairly senior people, and that just sometimes happens. You're just incredulous about how, what we should do next. And so that's when you might want to phone a friend or take a step back, take a deep breath, and then come at it with a little more structure. And the rapid mnemonic was really important. I basically hinged on that to get us out of that rut because we needed to start thinking about, okay, so what are the resuscitated needs? What are what what can we do there first? And so we made a stepwise management plan. Um, and, and I think that that sometimes when you're stuck in a rut, some of these tools can be useful. That's great. Thank you for joining us on uh, this month's episode of Teaching That Counts. We'll see you next time. See ya. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at the Residence Corner. We have with us one of our very own, Dr. Lorraine Kukshemoitz. Uh, I probably did not say that last name very correct, so we'll let her introduce herself. Uh, one of our very own uh, FRCP residents here at McMaster University. Lauren, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Lauren. I'm a PGY-4 uh, in emergency medicine at MAC. Uh, and I spent last year doing a point-of-care subspecialty uh, fellowship program here at McMaster. So the reason why we asked Lorraine to come and talk at our podcast uh, is because we all know that focus is becoming a bigger, bigger uh, part of uh, a typical shift in the emergency department. And we wanted to get her uh, opinion on the role of ultrasound in the emergency department. But before we get to that, we just want to ask a few more questions and let Lorraine tell us why why she was interested in the ultrasound in the first place or focus. Yeah, so um, I think that certainly... The use of focus is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the emergency department, and um, we get pretty solid training early on in our residency. So um, I think it was the early exposure to uh, to ultrasound and PGY one, um, and sort of watching um, the other fellows go through the fellowship program and and develop 
like expertise mm-hmm. in kind of exciting, exciting areas of focus. And um, it was sort of my desire to, um, to develop that, uh, that expertise as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like your interest in focus started early on in your uh, residency training, if not even sooner than that. Based on your experience thus far, and it sounds like that has been extensive throughout your residency with the subspecialty year, where do you see the future of ultrasound go, uh, going? Are we expecting our physicians in the emergency department to all be fluent in ultrasound in the near future? Or is that already happening? I think it's it's starting to happen, certainly. And I think um, with the kind of training that we get as residents yeah. uh, and the exposure that we get from, from early on, from PGA-1 or PGA-2 sort of level, uh, I think that it will, um, if it hasn't already, become the standard of care in the emergency department. Mm. Um, certainly, I think that... Most of our colleagues, or almost all of our colleagues, will be pretty comfortable with the basic applications, and uh, I think that more and more uh, sort of younger folks and and residents, as we sort of go through residency mm. training programs and um, and learn more of this stuff, uh, I think that the applications are going to be more and more broad. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It almost feels like in the very near future, like I said, if not already happening, we're going to see MDs uh, be required to, you know, perform basic ultrasound techniques or po- point of care ultrasound as if they were reading chest x-rays right, yeah. in the emergency room. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable comparison. And I think that um, sort of as time goes on, the barriers mm-hmm. to um, sort of using POCUS in your daily practice are going to become fewer. And I think that um, the accessibility of sort of handheld machines and stuff mm-hmm. like that is mm-hmm. going to become uh, more and more and, and um we see this even the the sort of Royal College requirements of of what residents need to sort of come away from mm-hmm. residency mm-hmm. feeling comfortable with are, are expanded and including a little bit more echo um, and some more advanced uh, applications. So I think that I think we're going to see that we are becoming more and more comfortable with it and the technology is more and more accessible. And I think it really will become a standard of care. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Loren. Uh, thank you for coming and talking to us about no your problem. passion in ultrasound, uh, point of care ultrasound specifically. And we look forward to seeing where, you know, it's going to go from here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>